Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. You know, we'd rather have our kids do what we say and not what we do. But the truth is, we know the greatest impact we have on our children is to also ask them to do what we're doing. That we're living by example for them. That communicates something. And when it comes to the spiritual, it communicates true power and authority. Well, that's what the people were seeing in Jesus as he taught them. And they were seeing something in him and in his teaching that they had not seen before, an authority which they were unfamiliar with as he opened up the word of God to them and lived it before them. And in the process, he was awakening a hunger in them that had been dormant as a result of their spiritually starved lives, spiritual starvation that had gone on for far too long. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, while presenting an outward appearance of authority uh, in their teachings, had created a climate of spiritual starvation by reducing their teachings to the traditions of men, the ideas of men, and, and, and their own failure to live God's Word as an example to the people. But Jesus, man, he was waving a spiritual stake right underneath their noses as he taught them with a power and authority that could only come from God's Word being central and taught in its fullness as demonstrated in his own life as he lived it before them. And it was stirring them in seeing something different. I kept using that steak analogy this morning outside. This is probably a bad weekend to do that on on Labor Day weekend when everybody's really grilling. And I could see the crowd out there was starting to lick their chops. You know what? That's exactly what should happen when we're sharing God's word with people, that, that it would cause them to lick their chops. And that happens when we're sharing the word in its primacy as, as the focal point. And then we're living our lives congruent with what it is we're sharing. Verse 33 goes on. It tells us, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Luke now tells us that as Jesus entered the synagogue, he encounters a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, which literally means this man was demon-possessed. It's interesting to note that in describing the situation, Luke actually uses language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 that describes us as Christians being in Christ. And the idea is that just as our being in Christ means that we're under Christ's authority, so too this man was under the authority of a demon. Now, several thoughts here in regard to demon possession while we're broaching this topic this morning, and I think these are important because I do think that there's a lot of confusion about demon possession. Is it real? What is? What are we to make of this? What do we do with this? Look, just a number of things, and you might want to write them down. Number one, demon possession as presented in the Scriptures are a very real occurrence. Demon possession as presented in the Scriptures are a very real occurrence. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. There is no reason for us to read any reference to such accounts in the Scripture as being allegorical or being symbolic in any way. 
but the scriptures present them to us as literal occurrences in the lives of people, and we must accept these accounts literally as such. I say that because there are far too many Christians who try to minimize accounts like this when they come to them in the Scriptures because of the unexplainable spiritual nature of those kinds of things. They can't relate to it, and, 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 and since they can't relate to it with their human minds, they try to explain it away giving all sorts of explanations for what the Scriptures are speaking of. Well, it's not demon possession. It was a darkness that was possessing their life. It was just a giving over to evil things and, and living it out that way. Listen, that's a big mistake. The Scriptures present it literally. We need to see it literally when we come to it in the Scriptures. Number two, demon possession did not end in Jesus's or the disciples' day. So even though we might not be aware of it in our day today, it is still a very real occurrence in our world. There's nothing in the Scriptures that would indicate in, in any way that demon possession only occurred during a specific period of time in biblical history and that at some point it ceased happening. Part of the reason we don't recognize it today is because in our world, driven by human logic and intellect, we've reduced demon possession to explainable issues. We might call it a medical issue. We might say it's a psychological disorder. We might say it was the pepperoni pizza they ate. Yet in many cases, not in all cases, it's, it's not a disorder or a medical condition, but it's true demonic possession. We just no longer relate to it all as such in our educated culture, our educated minds. I mean, after all, this is the 21st century, right? We don't believe in such superstitious things any longer. So we give it a different label, a label that fits our educated minds. For example, we might label it a psychosis. We might la label it schizophrenia. We might label it disassociative identity disorder, previously known as multiple personality disorder. But in reality, in some cases, not in all, please hear what I'm saying, not in all cases, but in some cases it might actually be demon possession. You know, I um, when I first came to Christ, I was an enlisted soldier in the Army, and in the first year of coming to Christ, um, I had an experience—no, not me—I had an experience with someone who was demon-possessed. I know that for a fact. And it was a roommate of mine. And this young man, though he professed some form of spirituality—it was a bizarre form of spirituality—it was believing in a multitude of different gods—but this, this young man had started to— exhibit. First, it was sort of quiet, and then we began to see it more and more, began to exhibit all sorts of behaviors. One of the behaviors he exhibited is that he would have these unexplainable, almost like a cardiac event. It was like he, he his chest would tighten up and, and all sorts of things. And, and, and the doctors, they got him to the doctor to look at this, and the doctor said, there's nothing physically, physically wrong with him. I mean, when he'd have these, he'd throw himself to the floor, and he'd begin to writhe around on the floor. And the doctor said, it's, it's all psychological, it's anxiety, it's this, it's that. He gave it a whole bunch of different names and everything else. But there was a sense, even as a young Christian, I had there was something far more to this because of some of the behaviors that went with it, the, the guttural language that he would break out with when these episodes were occurring, the cursing, the swearing, the taking the Lord's name in vain, a God he didn't even believe in, you know, all sorts of things. Well... I was hanging out with another group of guys in the barracks who were Christians, and one of the guys and I had come back from a weekend away. It was a, a Christian retreat, 
And we were talking about my roommate and talking about this situation. He, he shared with me, he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion. He said, I believe your roommate's possessed. And I said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. How do we determine this? How would we know? And we both came to the conclusion. We, we pulled back into the parking lot after that weekend. It was Sunday night. And I saw my roommate's car on the parking lot. Now, he tended to go nowhere except the mess hall in the room other than when he was working on, on a Sunday. And during the week, he was out at the bars. And I said, you know what? Let's do something. I'm going to go up to the room. It was about quarter to seven. I said, I'm going to go up to the room. You stay here in the car. And I said, when I go into the room, if he's there, I won't come back out. But if he's not there, I'll come back out and let you know. But assuming I don't come back out at seven o'clock, precisely at seven o'clock, I want you to begin to pray for the Lord to reveal to us if this is demonic possession. And so I went into the room and, and there was my roommate. He's in his bed and he's sleeping. I mean, he's sounder. So he has no idea of what we just talked about. Of course, he wasn't there anyways, but he would have had no way of knowing what it is we had decided to do. And so I just quietly went to my bed and I sat down across from his and I watched. And at seven o'clock, precisely at seven o'clock, this young man sat up, shot up in his bed, like from the prone position right into an L shape, right up, sat up, reached behind himself, grabbed a pair of scissors off the desk and began to shred his mattress while he was screaming out profanities. Just shred the mattress. Well, even as I share the story with you right now, the hair on my arm stands up and my neck. And now you can imagine how as a young Christian, that just shook me to the core. I quickly got out of the room. First of all, I was kind of concerned for my life. And two, I knew in that moment that what we were dealing with is demon possession. You know, later, and, and I'll just bring the story to an end because it's not the focus. But, you know, uh, we did pray. We got He got to a place uh, along the way where we were able to pray with him, a group of us, and we laid hands on him and we prayed for him. And and through Christ's authority, we called this thing, you know, and had the Lord just to, to, to deliver this guy, asked the Lord and begged him to do that. And the Lord did. And that young man professed Christ after that. And his life changed dramatically. So is it real? Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I've seen cases of it. I know it is. And yet doctors, people would look and say, oh, it was all just psychological illness. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. We have no reason to believe that it ended with a certain period of history. Third, demon possession only affects the unsaved, not the believer. Let me make this perfectly clear. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have professed Christ, you have placed your faith in him, and you are a believer in Christ, you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed. You cannot be possessed. The, the teachings by some in Christianity that, that, that convey the idea that the sins in a believer's life can indicate demon possession is both unscriptural and it, it, it negates the believer's responsibility for his or her own sin. Even though Scripture does not address this topic directly, Scripture is still very clear about it all. First of all, demon possession involves a demon having direct and complete authority over a person by taking up residence in them. Yet we also know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the one who takes up physical residence in the believer. <laughs> Jesus himself tells us this in John 14, verses 15 through 17, John 14 
Beginning in verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, Spirit's in you as a believer. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul makes it perfectly clear because he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That word dwells means tabernacles. In other words, he makes his home in you. In fact, Scripture tells us that if we don't have the Spirit dwelling in us, we are really not Christ's. We're really not Christians. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, his Spirit takes up residence in you. This being the case, we know from 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And furthermore, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, that light and darkness cannot coexist together in any sense, practically or spiritually. It's an anomaly that cannot exist. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So when you add all this together, you must conclude that the believer cannot be a temple of the Holy Spirit, having the Spirit of God indwelling him or her as a believer, and at the same time be a receptacle for a demonic spirit. These two things are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. Bottom line is this. If a believer is possessed by a demon, then you can be sure of what? That person is not a believer. It's that simple. It's that simple. But a believer can, however, find him or herself under attack by demonic spirits as they seek to oppress us. Look, I'm not taking away from that. But even then, as was the case with with Job, you know, because he was under spiritual oppression and attack, right? By Satan himself. But as was the case with Job, Satan could only interfere to the extent that God permitted him to do so. And it's the same with you. They don't operate freely in your life as they do with the demon-possessed person. And in such cases, the Scripture gives us the clear answer as to how we can deal with such oppression and such attacks. And it has nothing to do with casting out the demon of this or the demon of that from your life as a believer. Here's what we're simply told. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I trust in the Lord's might. I rest in his power because it's my protection. Then he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I mean, Paul doesn't argue that we're in a spiritual fight. Look, there's a spiritual war going on that's going to exist until this present world passes, and we're standing in the kingdom. But even though he argues that we're facing this, listen what he goes on to say. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says, I've given you the equipping. Put on the equipping. Nowhere in that do we find cast this demon out, cast that demon out. None of that. He just says, put on the equipping and stand. James reduces it to an even simpler statement. I like the book of James. Some people don't like the book of James because he's so direct, and he is direct, and he simplifies it all. I like it. He says this, James 4, verses 7 through 8, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's like James would be looking at people who think that, well, what do I do? I'm being attacked by the devil. I'm being attacked by demonic spirits. What do I do? Submit to God. Resist them. Resist them. They'll flee. Take your stand. Resist is the idea of just taking your stand. You don't have to chase after them. You don't have to focus on them. You don't have to make them your obsession. Just take your stand. Draw near to God. That's your focus. Draw near to... They're not your focus. God is. Draw near to God. And oh, by the way, if you got something going on in your life, wash your hands. Repent of it. Let the Lord bring the cleansing that's needed. (laughs) Peter. Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, First Peter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I like this. Peter is acknowledging that, look, spiritual warfare is real. They're going to attack. Satan might even want to attack. They're going to attack. This is what they're doing. They want to devour you. But listen to what he says in verse 9. Resist them, steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He makes it a matter of fact again, just saying, in other words, just keep pressing on and resist. Staying with the equipping that the Lord has given you, keep marching on. Don't get worried about them. March on. God will be your protection. I like this because I've just heard so many what I believe to be absolutely errant teachings that, that that formulates all sorts of rituals for Christians to go through in order to free themselves of any kind of demonic oppression. Demonic oppression can be very real. Demonic attacks can be very real in the believer's life, and it's all reduced to the simplicity of this. God's given you the equipping. Keep your focus on him. Keep marching. Keep marching. Don't get distracted by it all. And if you're a Christian, know this. Demonic possession will not affect your life. It might affect you as you come in contact with people who are demonically possessed, who God then wants to to make you aware of, to use you in those situations. But demons cannot possess you personally as a believer. Number four, and finally, demon possession doesn't just happen randomly. People open the doors to it in their lives. 
You come across a person who's truly demon-possessed, you can know that they gave themselves over to demonic things, which eventually opened them to come under the authority of demons who then took up residence in them. And it oftentimes begins in small, innocuous ways. It's small things that they begin to dabble with, to engage in, to find themselves fascinated with. But over time, more and more, those doors get opened up until they've opened the door wide and invited them in. In other words, it doesn't just happen by accident or against any person's will. People who find themselves possessed by demons have themselves welcomed demons in by the very things that they were engaging in in their lives. And what are some of those things? Well, I just speculate. I think there are a lot of doors that can be opened, you know, fascination with the occult and and playing around with with occultic kind of things. I am not a fan of Ouija boards, man. If you've got one in your house, you need to throw it out. It's got nothing for you as a believer, nothing. You know, at the very least, it's soothsaying. At the worst, it's demonically motivated and moved. Games. There are games out there, absolutely demonic. In, in, in the video game world and in the board game world, stay away from that kind of stuff with its incantations and all of that. There's a fascination that grows with it that over time can begin to become a gateway to other things. Drugs. And the scriptures are referred to as pharmakia. The idea is a gateway. There's a gateway. Pursuit of power and prestige. Yeah, that can be a gateway. You've heard people make the expression making deals with the devil. In a lot of cases, people be willing to trade lots of things in order to get power, prestige, or money. The pursuit of sexual obsessions and deviant sexual pursuits, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But there's lots of gateways that have nothing to do, that have nothing to do with the, the simplicity of the pure things in the Word of God. But in all cases, a doorway is required which a person chooses to open, whether knowingly or unknowingly. It doesn't just happen by chance. Now, all of that being the case, how do we deal with it when we come across it? Well, let's look at Jesus because he's always our go-to for, for knowing how to deal with things. Look at verse 33. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. So Luke tells us that as this demon-possessed man sees Jesus, he, the demon, through the man, using the man's vocal cords, begins to scream some things at Jesus. And literally, when he says, cried out with a loud voice, it means he was shouting these things out. First thing he shouts out is, let us alone. Let us alone. Now now note that this is is stated in the plural. (laughs) implying that there's more than one demon that's taken up residence in this man. And Scripture indicates that that is oftentimes the case, that there's more than one demon at work in a person's life. As we're going to see when we get to chapter 8 of the book of Luke, it sometimes involves a number of demons in a single person. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it reveals that Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her, but Jesus delivered her from them. Luke chapter 8 and verse 30, it will reveal that the possessed man in the region of the Gadarenes had a legion of them within him. Because Jesus says, he calls him out, what's your name? He says, we are legion for we are many. And it's an understandable fact that this multitude of demonic spirits, however many there are in this man, want Jesus to let them alone. 
They know who he is. They know what he's capable of doing. In fact, they're going to make some assumptions about him, and I'll explain that in a moment, that that haven't happened yet, but they know what the potential is here in dealing with Jesus. And they're just saying, let us alone. When they say, what do we have to do with you? That's the second thing. What do we, what have we to do with you? This is a hostile way of saying, what business do we have with each other? Mind your own business, Jesus. Go back to whatever it is you were doing. What do we got to do with each other? Just move on. Number three, what do we have to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth. You'll note that Jesus has not identified himself to these demonic spirits, but they clearly knew who he was by name. As one pastor said it, he said it's ironic that the demons knew who Jesus was, but the chosen people, those from his own city, did not appreciate who he was. Hmm, Interesting contrast. Number four, they cry out, did you come to destroy us? Did you come to destroy us? This is this is more than simply a statement as to whether or not Jesus was about to do them in, but it was actually a question concerning the coming of the kingdom age. You see, it's a question that is asking whether or not the kingdom age was now here, an age when even the demons knew from the scriptures that their power and control over the world will be broken forever. The demonic hosts know that there's an end coming. I know people think that that Satan thinks that he can get away with it all and he'll just keep on doing it because he thinks he can get away with it. But that's not true. If you look at the book of Revelation, we are told that he rages. He knows his end is coming. He knows better than you do what the end holds for him as Scripture teaches it. He's just trying to take as many down as he possibly can. These demonic spirits know the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures that speak of the kingdom age when the demons will have no authority anymore, not just taking away their authority, but that they'll be eventually be cast into the lake of fire. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.